0: and open with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, uh, the entire chapter, verse 1 through 32, is our text this morning, as uh, this morning we, we end our series through this middle section of Luke. I think we'll we'll move to some Psalms, and then I think we'll pick back up with the end of Luke uh, and the new year. But this morning, our text, uh, Luke 15, 1 through 32, and... Luke 15 is found, if you have one of the Red Bibles, on page 874, 874. and if you're able, I want to ask you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy word as I want to read for us the entire chapter. Luke chapter 15, hear the reading of God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, The man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing... And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, would you help us now? Such a glorious and rich text. We do not want to find our hearts numb to it. We do not want to walk out of this room unaffected by your glorious word. So would you empower me to preach it in a way that upholds the glory of what you have revealed to us, and would you help us all to hear it? Give us ears to hear, so that we walk out knowing more of who you are and loving you more with our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this for our good and for the honor of Christ, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago, as we were studying through the book of Joshua, I remember early on in Joshua chapter 2 being gripped by the reality of the absolute nature, the thorough reality of redemption. Because what you see early on in the book of Joshua is a prostitute named Rahab who comes to know redemption. In fact, she's so thoroughly cleansed, so thoroughly forgiven, that she comes into the tribes of Israel. She's an Israelite for all intents and purposes, and she marries a man named Salmon. Together, they have a son named Boaz, who has a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, the greatest king in Israel's history, until, of course, Jesus comes. And I remember saying, as we looked at that story, that... If we really believed what that text taught us, if we really believed what we saw in Rahab, the thorough, absolute reality of cleansing, of forgiveness, of redemption, then we could envision a prostitute in Jackson, Tennessee, hearing the gospel, repenting, believing, and being so forgiven and cleansed and redeemed that she could come and marry one of our sons. And I remember at the time feeling the effect in my own heart, and I think us as a congregation feeling the effect of that in a powerful way because when you say it that way, when you say it in a way that's a real life story, it it makes it real to you. You're, You're forced to face and feel the full force of these truths that we're talking about. There's something about real life stories that take truths that we might say, yes, that's accurate. There's something about stories that take those truths and helps us to feel them, to be moved by them. And I think that's why Luke 15 is so powerful. This chapter is made up of three stories, three parables where Jesus speaks of three things that are lost and is found in the first parable. It's a sheep that is lost and found. And the second, a coin that is lost and then found. And the third, it's actually a story of two sons. And one of them is found and the other remains lost. But these parables, these stories are powerful and they communicate truths to us that, that I think we might all know, but it forces us to feel them in our hearts, to face the glorious realities In our souls three things that we see in these stories we first see the heart of God as he approaches and seeks after sinners second we see what it looks like to come to Christ as a sinner who is repentant and third we see of how we can be lost while thinking all is well with us and so what I want to do this morning is walk through these three realities that we see in these parables now Just for context for us, the parables begin with the scribes and Pharisees once more at odds with Jesus and confronting him. We read in chapter 15, verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is near to Jesus, and this causes the Pharisees and scribes problems. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So, as they see sinners, these individuals who are caring nothing for the law of God, just living uh, immoral lives, prostitutes and the like, and tax collectors, those who are notorious for robbing from their neighbors, as they see these individuals eating with Jesus, they're individuals that they want nothing to do with, and so they're greatly offended that Jesus is willing to receive them and willing to eat with them. And so, as they grumble against him, he tells these three parables. So, this is what... This is what prompts these three parables that the scribes and Pharisees are complaining about Jesus eating with sinners. And so first, especially in the first two parables, we see a picture of God's heart to seek after, receive, and save sinners. We see a picture of God's heart to seek after, receive, and save sinners. Jesus introduces this first parable in verse 4 by asking this question, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, the answer, of course, is that everyone would do that. No one who is a shepherd would see a sheep wander off and thinks, Well, there goes a sheep. I guess I'll chalk that up to a loss. No, rather, what you would do is you would say, Uh, to maybe an assistant or a fellow shepherd. Would you watch over these 99 here in the open country because I'm gonna go off and get that one. And as Jesus pictures this, he pictures the shepherd not only going after this one sheep who is lost, but when he gets him, he finds him and he puts him up on his shoulders because he's gonna bring him home. And already, Jesus says, the shepherd is rejoicing. Rejoicing that he's found his sheep. Rejoicing that he has them on his shoulders. Rejoicing that he's about to bring him home but it doesn't stop there. Once he lugs that sheep all the way back home, he then gets home and sends out word to his family and friends and neighbors saying, I want you to rejoice with me because the sheep that I have lost is now found and you must celebrate with me. And then Jesus then makes the point of the parable clear in verse seven saying, just so I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not actually acknowledging that there really is a genuine category of righteous individuals who don't need to repent. He's made very clear throughout the whole of the Bible. Paul makes explicitly clear in the book of Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no exceptions to this. But what Jesus is recognizing is these scribes and Pharisees are complaining about him eating with sinners see themselves as righteous. They see themselves as not needing mercy and grace. And Jesus is saying to them, I want you to know this, heaven rejoices more over these sinners that I'm eating with when they repent and come to Christ. Heaven rejoices more for their repentance than over your supposed righteousness, which is really simply self-righteousness. Then Jesus tells another parable that really makes the same point. And it feels like Jesus is appealing to everyone here. If the first parable, you might say, relates to men, shepherd out in the field seeking his lost sheep, and the second, he focuses on women. And the second parable is a woman in a domestic setting in her home. She has 10 silver coins and she loses one. And so what does she do? Does she say, well, at least I still have the nine? No. Jesus says she lights a lamp. She begins to sweep the floor. She searches diligently until she finds that lost coin. And then when she finds that lost coin, like the shepherd, she calls up her friends and family and neighbor. We read in verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And then Jesus makes the point again, just so I tell you, there is is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, Jesus, in both of these parables, is making the same point. In each case, he's revealing to us the heart of God for sinners, God is one who seeks after the lost, who seeks after sinners so that they might repent and come to Him and find life in Him. And then when they do repent, He does not hold them at arm's length because they have been notorious sinners. He rather receives them and rejoices over their repentance. This is a picture of God's heart toward those who are lost. In other words, when the scribes and Pharisees are getting on to Jesus, grumbling about him, eating with sinners, calling them to repentance, and then rejoicing over them coming to repentance, Jesus is not here offering any apologies. He's not saying to the scribes and Pharisees, oh, you're right, I haven't really thought about that. I probably shouldn't be around these people. No, he tells these two parables to say, when you see me pursuing sinners and calling them to repentance and rejoicing over them, what you're recognizing, what you should be seeing, is the heart of God to seek after the lost. One of the most basic things that we celebrate as Christians is that it was while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, He sought after us. When we tell the story of Christ, the Son of God, coming down and living a perfect life, having taken on flesh, dying on the cross to pay for her sin, our sins and being raised from the dead on the third day. He did not do that because we asked him to. We weren't even like Israel in the wilderness in Egypt complaining about our situation. We were perfectly content being like sheep that had gone astray. We were perfectly content in our rebellion against God, suppressing what we knew to be true about God and our unrighteousness. It was God in his love for us while we were still sinners, who decided to send his son for us? It was God's initiative. And so, the first thing we see in the text, what Jesus makes clear, is a picture of God's heart to seek after, receive, and save sinners. Second, we see a picture of what it looks like for a sinner to come to Christ. We see a picture of what it looks like for a sinner to come to Christ. Now, we're going to continue to see in this third parable the heart of God to seek after, receive, and rejoice in repentant sinners coming to him. But we also see this reality of what it looks like for a sinner to come to Christ. The parable, this third parable, we often speak of it. In fact, it's labeled in the ESV Pew Bible that I'm using this morning. It's labeled the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really a parable of two sons, and let's first focus on the first of these sons, the younger son. The story begins by showing the depth of the younger son's sin. The text begins, verse 11. And he said, "There was a man who had two sons. Then the younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me." Now What's so painfully sad about this picture is this is a son saying to his father, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. In fact, the only value that I recognize that you have is that when you die, I will get some inheritance. That's all that you are to me. And so I wish, Dad, that what you would do is go ahead and give me the only value I see in you right now. Go ahead and divide the inheritance Give me my portion, and I'm going to be done with you. And, and amazingly, in the face of this young man saying to his father, I, I wish you were dead, basically, the father decides he's going to do it. And he gives the son his portion of the inheritance, and the text says that he went off to a far country, and he squandered every bit of it through his reckless living. So that now he is empty-handed and has nothing. Now, let's, let's pause at this point in the story just to remind ourselves, to orient ourselves a little bit to what prompts this parable. What is Jesus picturing here through this younger son who goes off and lives recklessly, obviously against the morals and commands that his father would have taught him and upheld and, and given to him as his father? Well, what this young son represents are these sinners that Jesus is eating with. These are individuals who say, I care absolutely nothing about God's laws and God's morals. This is why the scribes and Pharisees had such problems with them. No one was deceived in thinking, well, maybe these are righteous people. No, these were people for whom uh, their sin was obvious. They have rebelled against God in a number of ways. as sexually immoral, violent, and the like. Well, that's what this young man pictures. He goes off and lives that life. Later, his other brother's going to complain he squandered what he had with prostitutes. So don't think this this young man goes off and and maybe tells a lie here or there. No, he is an absolute rebellion against God, picturing these sinners that Jesus is eating with. Well, as Jesus continues the story, the young man has squandered everything. He has nothing, and it only gets worse. The far country where he was, a severe famine hits that place. And now everybody's lacking. And he who already had spent everything that he had now found himself in great need. So he found a man in that far country and asked if he could be hired out to care for the man's pigs. Now just to let you know, because this doesn't resonate as much with us, for a young Jewish boy to spend his life caring for and feeding pigs is about the worst possible place he could have imagined himself. I mean, this is, this is so utterly corrupt and unclean. And yet, this is where he finds himself, in the middle of a pigsty, feeding pigs daily. In fact, he gets so hungry that he's sitting in that pigsty, starving to death, wishing, as he gave these pods to the pigs to eat, that he could eat what they're eating. And then he came to his senses. Verse 17, the way Jesus says it in verse 17 is, but when he came to himself. He came to his right mind and he recognized, as verse 17 continues, how many of my father's higher servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He looks around and he thinks, man, if I had just, if I were just back home, not not even my father's son, if I were just back home as one of my father's servants, I would have everything that I need to eat. I would be so much better off than the way I am now. So he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go home and say to my father, would you please receive me? But you don't even have to receive me as your son anymore. I just want to be one of your hired servants. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What's pictured at this point in the story is what we historically in the church have called conviction of sin. See, one of the things that the Spirit does in our lives is He works in our lives, easy being as unbelievers, to make us ready to come to Christ. And one of the ways that he makes us ready to come to Christ is he reveals to us our sin. In fact, I grabbed earlier the, the Heidelberg Catechism because I wanted to read to you question one as we started our service. I was just thinking earlier in the week, we're going to sing the song. I want you to hear the background of this question number one. What's our, our hope, our comfort in life and death? But as I printed it off, it was in two pages. And so what I found was question two appearing right after question one, which makes sense, doesn't it? But let me read for you question two. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort that we just talked about? What's her comfort in life and death? Christ, that I belong to him, body and soul. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I'm set free from all sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. But the Heidelberg Catechism says that because it's pointing to the reality of the conviction of sin. One of the things that the Spirit does to make us ready to come to Christ is He reveals to us the depth and the misery of our sin. And that's a good thing. I like reading ian murray books he's a writer an individual who started banner of truth publishing he's written a number of books on revival and one of the things that's so exciting about his books are when he speaks of individuals preaching the gospel in areas preaching that that christ has lived and died and was raised preaching that men are under the judgment of god and ian murray will write about men and women in that city feeling the conviction of sin knowing that they are sinners under God's judgment and their only hope is his mercy. My hope is that many in this room can resonate with that. Even as a young boy, I remember the conviction of sin in my own life, realizing at nine years old that I was a sinner in need of God's mercy. If you are at the point that you look at your life and think, I don't need mercy or you look at what you've done and you're ready to make excuses for your sins, you are not feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you're not ready to come to Christ. But by His grace, the Spirit can reveal that to you, make you see your sin and feel that you have no excuses and know that your only hope is to throw yourself at the mercy of God who sent His Son. That's what this Son does in the pigsty. Notice there's no sense of him saying to himself, uh, this really isn't my fault. Uh, my father shouldn't have acquiesced, right? I lay it at his feet. Or there's no sense of, of, of him saying, you know, I'll go back, but maybe I can negotiate with him. No, he simply knows this is all on me. I've made a wreck of my life. I'm not worthy to be my father's son. My only hope is the mercy of my father. And then what happens is he gets up out of that pigsty and he heads home. And as he's heading home, Jesus says that his father is standing and looking. Now, I don't know. It may be that that was coincidence. It may be that on the day this son decided to come home, his father happened to be looking. Or it may be that every day his father walked out and looked for his son in hopes that he would come. And on this day, the father's looking, and he sees his son. And the son is no doubt rehearsing in his mind what he's gonna say. Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just make me one of your hard servants. That's all I I, I deserve. It's all, there's nothing more I I can hope for or claim. But as the son is no doubt going over this speech in his head, the father runs to him. And the text says when he gets to him, he embraces him. He hugs him and he kisses him. And as the son is getting ready to deliver his full speech that he's been no doubt going over in his head, the father interrupts him. We read the story in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's getting ready to deliver his prepared line. So just make me one of your servants. That's all I've delivered. But he never gets to deliver the line. Because verse 22 says, but the father said to his servants, that is, interrupting his son, his father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe." and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to celebrate. That is a picture of how the father responds to anyone who turns to him in repentance. Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you this morning, If you entered this room feeling the weight of your sin, maybe you were like David in Psalm 51 and you sinned maybe this week, maybe in a gross and debauched manner. And you've walked into this room and like David in Psalm 51, you're saying to God, my sin is ever before me. And you're thinking to yourself, I have messed up everything. And God is going to want nothing to do with me. And even if he forgives me, he's going to do so begrudgingly. And he's going to keep me at arm's length. And I'm always going to be the one who, okay, maybe I get to be forgiven, but I did that. And I'm going to have to walk under the shame of that. Brothers and sisters, if that's what you're thinking, you are believing a lie from the pit of hell. When God wanted to picture to us, now now catch this, because this is so, so weighty. When God himself, wanted to picture for us his response to our repentance, he pictures it in terms of a father looking out for his son, and when he sees his son coming in repentance, runs to him and embraces him and hugs him and kisses him and says, he's not going to bear any marks of anything any less than my son. He's gonna have the robe and the ring and the celebrate. There's going to be a party. This is the picture God chooses to show us his response to us, to show his response to anyone who repents. Like I said, we're still seeing the, the glory in this third parable of the Father's approach to sinners who repent. He receives them and rejoices over them, but we also see the picture of a sinner turning and coming to Christ, what what repentance looks like. If this morning you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to say to you, if you're an unbeliever, my prayer is that you would experience the same thing this younger son experienced in that pigsty. And this morning you would realize my sin puts me under the judgment of God. And you would recognize you have no hope there's no, there's no debate. There's no arguing. You have no hope in and of yourself to be able to claim anything. Your only hope is to throw yourself at the mercy of God. But if you do so, you are throwing yourself at the mercy of one who says, if you repent, I'll embrace you. i hug you and kiss you and throw a party for you. All of heaven rejoices. Come to him if you do not know him. But that's not the only picture we see. We also see a third picture, a picture of a sinner who is deceived. A picture of a sinner who is deceived. I mentioned earlier, typically we term this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of that first son, as if this parable is simply about the one who was in the pigsty and came home. And indeed, he receives many of the verses, but it's not about simply one son. It's about two sons. And crazy enough, it's about two sons who are lost. It's easier for us to see that the first son is lost because he went out and lived in a grotesque way. It's harder for us to see that the older son is also lost because his life doesn't look as bad and honestly, Because the older son doesn't realize it either. In fact, that's the whole problem. His sin, his rebellion, his lost state isn't manifesting itself in debauchery. It's manifesting itself in self-righteousness. So what happens is as the younger son has come back, the father has received him, the fattened calf is killed, they're having a party, they're playing music, and they're dancing, the older son has been out in the field and he starts approaching the house. And as he approaches the house, he hears the music, he hears the dancing, he sees what's going on, and he doesn't understand it, the scene doesn't make any sense to him, and so he calls one of his father's servants, and he says to him, what in the world's going on? Why, why the music? Why the dancing? And we read the answer in verse 27, and he said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, this should have been an opportunity for the older brother to say, this is great news. My brother, who is is obviously a sinner, notorious sinner, has come to his senses and come home. But instead, verse 28 says, but he was angry and refused to go in. And so what did his father do? He came out to him. His father came out and entreated him. That is, his father came out and said, son, come in. Rejoice with us, celebrate with us. But, verse 30, but when this son of yours, the the older son says, I'm sorry, verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What's going on here? Well, remember the opening scene. Pharisees and scribes complaining because Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. So now Jesus tells a parable about two lost sons. The first son represents the tax collectors and sinners. Everybody knows he's a sinner. Prostitutes. Prostitutes debauchery, immorality, squandering all that he has. But this other son represents the scribes and Pharisees. Individuals who do not recognize that they are in need of mercy, do not think that they need grace. Think about how the older son says to his father, I never disobeyed your command. No doubt that's untrue, and yet this is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees think when they look at themselves when they look at the sinners that Jesus is eating with they don't look and think they are sinners like we are sinners they look and think they are sinners and we are righteous they are sinners but we have obeyed and what Jesus is saying to them as they complain instead of celebrating that these sinners are repenting and coming to Christ and it should be a cause for rejoicing What Jesus is saying to them is, as the Father says this to the older son, don't you recognize every blessing they're experiencing can be yours? It's been laid at your feet. All you need to do is like them, recognize your sin, recognize your self-righteousness, repent of it, turn to me in faith, and we will throw a party and celebrate over another sinner repenting but they would not do it because they did not see their sin. They could not get past their own self-righteousness. They didn't see in themselves the need to repent of anything or find mercy of grace. There are then what Jesus is showing us, two paths of rebellion, aren't there? We easily recognize this first where an individual's rebellion is seen in all kinds of unrighteous living, perhaps drunkenness and violence and sexual immorality. These are the kinds of testimonies that, that we often remember, don't we? When somebody shares their testimony and they say, you know, I was, I was diving into sexual morality. I was on uh, abusing alcohol and on drugs and walking in violence and, and I had prostitute and, and God saved me. And we celebrate that because it's amazing testimony. But that's not the only path of rebellion. There's another path of rebellion where somebody could give a testimony saying, I grew up when I was the kind of kids that made my parents happy. I was the kind of kid, rather not plural kids, that would have been weird. (laughs) I was the kind of kid that made my parents happy. I got good grades. I, I, for the most part, did what they told me to do. My neighbors were impressed. When my parents told others about what I was doing, it was the kind of things that parents get excited about saying. Hey, he's doing well in school. He's got a great job. He's, he's found this, this great girl. He's making good money at his job. But that testimony could end, and then I recognized that I was full of self-righteousness. And my only hope was Christ. Both of those are paths of rebellion And both of them have consequences, but both of them, if they end in repentance, will find life and forgiveness. You see, what the Pharisees and scribes needed to realize, and something that we can miss as well, is that the man who lives a terribly rebellious, debauched life and repents will go to heaven. But the man who volunteers after work at the homeless shelter and takes his vacation time and spends it caring for orphans in the orphanage in that faraway country and never repents, will go to hell. That's the reality that Jesus is picturing for us. We all need grace. This is why I've quoted Ray Ortland before uh, on this note. But Ray Ortland says, every person in heaven knows they don't deserve to be there. They deserve to be in hell. And every person in hell thinks they deserve to be in heaven. Self-righteousness will send you to hell. And so it may be this morning that you're thinking, yeah, that first picture wasn't me. I've not lived the debauched life. There's not been prostitutes and and immorality and drugs and alcohol and violence and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But maybe you're sitting there recognizing, but I've never felt the weight of my sin. And I've never confessed that my only hope is God's mercy. If so, I want to plead with you to come to Him. Because, oh, how glorious it is to come to our Father in repentance. I am a hugger in my home. I hug my kids a lot. And even my boys, I kiss them. On the head or on the cheek or something like that. On the ear accidentally sometimes, right? <clears throat> but one reason that I like to make a practice, one reason I do it, it's not theological at all, I just enjoy it. But there's another reason. One reason I want my kids to think, you know what dad's gonna do if we walk past each other in the hallway? whether I want it or not, he's going to grab me and embrace me and hug me and kiss me. Because I want them to know in the depths of their sin and he is just a poor picture of how my heavenly father will respond to me if I turn to him in repentance. He will run to me and embrace me and hug me and kiss me And if you will, brag to his neighbors, my son has repented. Rejoice with me. So if you've been holding on to your sin, don't hold on to it any longer. And if you've been buying into the fact, to the thought, rather, to the lie that you think God wants nothing to do with you or you've gone too far, recognize this morning that that's just a lie of the devil, There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that's true, no matter how deeply you feel it. In fact, the picture God gives us of how he responds to sinners who repent is right here in this story, with that old man running and hugging and embracing and kissing his son. And so this morning, what I want us to do is, one, if we need to confess our sins, let's joyfully this morning confess our sins and repent. And know that our Father is delighting in us. And the other thing I want us to do is pray that we will never lose sight of how our Father responds to us in our repentance. That we would never be caught by the grip of the lie of the devil who tells us we've gone too far or that maybe he will forgive us, but he only does so begrudgingly. It's nothing in the Bible that confirms that. And the final thing that I want us to do is just to enjoy that. It's a good scene, isn't it? Of that younger son who was ready to be made a hired servant for his father being held by him and squeezed by him and brought in close to him and kissed by him. Brothers and sisters, right now, that's your father toward you. And many of us don't think of God the least bit like that. And so this morning, just enjoy who he is toward you. Give yourself over to believing that what sounds too good to be true really is true. And just enjoy it. And one reason we can know it's true Is because this meal reminds us he's done everything necessary to bring us to himself. While we were still sinners, Christ gave his body and shed his blood so that we might be made children of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment of silence this morning. Perhaps you can reflect, pray, uh, just dwell in the glory of your Father's heart toward you. And then we're going to come to the table, row by row. The first row will get to go to the outside and come around and grab one stack of two cups: top one juice, the bottom one bread. Return to your seat to the inside. Second row will follow. Third row will follow. There'll be pastors here serving you. If you're in this area to my left, there'll be a pastor over here. And then when we get back to our seats, we'll eat together, we'll drink together, and we'll celebrate that our Father responds to us repentant sinners with his embrace and his hugs and his kisses and his rejoicing. So this morning, let's take a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table this morning.